we want to continue today with our study of God the Spirit. And so far, we've seen the person of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a person, and that he is divine. He is deity. He's God. We've also seen the promise of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament scriptures, but that really the prime focus on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the promise of a future work and presence of the Spirit. That comes through the prophetic words in the Old Testament regarding, first of all, the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit will be present in a special way with the Messiah. And so we took one Sunday to look at how Jesus fulfilled that promise that he was the Messiah and that the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life marked him as God's Savior King, his anointed one. Then last time we looked at this promise of the Spirit coming to the people of God, that he would do a new work among the people of God. This was the gift of the Holy Spirit, in which we see that all of God's promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit, and that Jesus' promises throughout the Gospels that he would send the Spirit are also fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so now we come to the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Because what we experience as the Holy Spirit's work in our lives all takes place under what the Bible calls the new covenant. Let's pray, and then we'll begin to look at what the new covenant is and the Holy Spirit's relationship to it. Lord, we thank you today that you have given us the great and awesome privilege of coming around your word to hear it taught and to receive it. And Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to it and give us understanding and that we would retain it, that we would take it in and uh, build our lives upon what you have revealed to us here in the scriptures. In your name we ask this. Amen. In the Bible, covenants form the basis for relationship with God. To belong to God, to know God, and to know his blessings requires being in a covenant relationship with him. This is necessary because of the fall of mankind into sin. Because Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, there was this breaking, this fissure, this divide created between man, the creature, and God, the creator. God would provide a way to restore man, but God, in relating to mankind, establishes covenants so that man can re relate with him, have a relationship with him. And so throughout the Bible, we see God establishing covenants with a number of people. And by the way, it's always God who establishes the covenant. Even if it's a covenant that requires obedience on the part of people, it is still God who is always establishes the covenants, never the other way around. But he establishes them with various people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. Before Jesus Christ, God's people were the nation of Israel. 
God established a covenant with Abraham, promising him that his descendants would become a nation, a distinct people group belonging especially to God. And God then established a covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. And this covenant set forth requirements for them to please God and to set them apart from all other peoples. They and they alone would know the one true God through this covenant, which is called the law. And through this covenant, they could worship God rightly. They could please him in the ways they could deal with sin. They could even deal with violations of the covenant. This is the law or the Mosaic covenant. These covenants are at the heart of the Bible's Old Testament. And in fact, the word testament means covenant. This is why our Bible is divided into the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Testament, New Covenant. But even under the Mosaic Covenant, God made it clear that a new covenant was needed. And he promised that he would make a new and a better covenant, a new and a better basis for a relationship with him. The prophet Jeremiah revealed this covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And the prophet Ezekiel as well reveals this covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules." So this new covenant would be based on God's sovereign, miraculous work of changing the hearts of people, of bringing them from spiritual death to life, enabling them to know him, enabling them to love him and to obey him. It would be initiated by Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why Jesus says at the Last Supper with his disciples, the night before he's crucified, when he takes the cup, they're celebrating Passover, but Jesus institutes a, a new practice. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. And then when he takes the cup, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus was saying that his sacrificing his life, the spilling of his blood would establish or open, initiate a new covenant, this new covenant. And Jesus was referring to the new covenant that all of his disciples knew was revealed in the Old Testament, was predicted. He was saying, this is the new covenant. Well, while Jesus would initiate this new covenant with his death and his resurrection, this sovereign, miraculous work would be activated by God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who would apply this new covenant relationship to God's people by his power and his presence. That power and presence came when God poured out his spirit at Pentecost. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. Now let's talk about the baptism with the Spirit. When I began this series of sermons, I mentioned that my purpose in teaching on God the Spirit was not confrontational, that I wasn't going to take a polemical approach, that my goal was not to go and attack everybody's views of the Holy Spirit that don't agree with mine or what I understand the Bible to say, but that there would be points of disagreement, in particular with Pentecostal teachings, and that I would have a responsibility to challenge those with Scripture when I came upon them. The baptism of the Spirit is one of those points of disagreement. Basic Pentecostal doctrine teaches that the baptism of the Spirit is a work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life that is subsequent to them becoming a Christian. In other words, a Christian isn't baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit when he becomes a Christian, but sometime after that as a subsequent or follow-up experience. Sometimes it is called a second blessing. Some believe that this follow-up baptism of the Spirit is for empowerment or for uh, the wisdom and power to proclaim the gospel, or it might be for uh, sanctification, to be made holy before God. Some believe that. Or uh, some believe that it is to a special call to service. Some would say that it can be all of those things or any of those things. If this is true then it naturally follows that every Christian should be seeking to have this experience and attempting in some ways to gain this experience, to gain the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which implies that if you haven't experienced the baptism with the Spirit, you're missing something. And that in some way or another, you are leading an inferior Christian life because you haven't yet had this experience, because some Christians have had it and other Christians haven't. This teaching is destructive. It's destructive to the believer and it's destructive to the church because it creates two levels of Christians. There are some Christians that have a superior experience of Christ and the Christian life because they have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then there are others who have this inferior 
walk with Christ. They have an inferior experience of the Christian life because they've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are the haves and there are the have-nots. Also, it misleads Christians into seeking an unbiblical experience. And when they don't have it, they are tempted then to fabricate it so that they can no longer be numbered with the have-nots, but be among the haves. Be part of this, this spirit, superior group that has had this extra blessing that other Christians haven't yet experienced. Now, I don't think that this misleading is always intentional. I think a lot of times it's unintentional. It's just the byproduct of this doctrine uh, that the baptism of the Spirit is the secondary experience after you become a Christian. And somehow you have to seek it, and you have to pray for it, and you have to gain it somehow. To add to the confusion then, there are some who use the terms baptism of the Spirit as a synonym for being filled with the Spirit. Now, we've seen examples in our study here of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see it in the Old Testament scriptures when the Holy Spirit fills someone or comes upon someone to enable them, empower them to some great feat of wisdom or feat of strength, something that they could never do uh, uh, by their own natural abilities. It's a supernatural empowerment. And we see this in Acts chapter 2, don't we? When the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, it says that the apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. So they were empowered then to proclaim in various languages the gospel, which then attracted the crowd and they heard Peter preach the gospel. Those who treat baptism and filling as the same thing reason that Christians then should expect to experience the baptism of the Spirit repeatedly, by which they are empowered to do some great work or proclaim the gospel or even just living the Christian life, re resisting uh, temptation and sin. So if we look then carefully, though, at the scriptures, what they say about the baptism with the Spirit, we don't find any subsequent follow-up experience to becoming a Christian. We don't find the baptism of the Spirit to be that. We are never told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nor do the scriptures ever present the baptism of the Spirit as an experience some Christians have and other Christians do not have. Neither is it ever presented as a repeated experience like the filling of the Spirit. That you're baptized here and then you're baptized in the Spirit again and you're baptized with the Spirit here again. We never see that in Scripture. So let's return to the book of Acts chapter 2 and see what we shall see. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Now remember, the, Holy, the disciples have been waiting there in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And then he comes according to the promise. And there's the sound of the great rushing wind. And there's the... The, the divided tongues of fire that appear to them and then alight on them and then filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues and the crowds of people who are there for the Feast of Pentecost hear them doing this and they gather around them and go, what's going on? Are these guys drunk? And 
And Peter is the one then that calls attention to himself, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He appeals then to a prophecy of the prophet Joel. But this was... Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit. And it has certain signs and wonders that come with that. Prophesying. Okay, verse 18. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And then he it concludes in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this pouring out of the Spirit, according to Joel's prophecy, is connected with a day of salvation or a time of salvation. That this pouring out of the Spirit would mean that people, anybody, men, women, old, young, slaves, free, could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Then, Peter goes on to testify to Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah, the one whom God would send to save and to rule. And he confronts his audience with the reality that they are the ones who have killed him. They are the ones who have were, the, were instrumental in him being crucified by the Roman government. And Peter's conclusion then but he says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And his conclusion is in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And Peter says this, you crucified the Messiah, God raised him from the dead, and then he was exalted to the right hand of God. And we're witnesses of all of these things. They witnessed Jesus die, they witnessed Jesus uh, risen from the dead, not actually rising out of the grave, but shortly afterwards, they witnessed the risen Lord. They spoke with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They know that he was real. He spent 40 days continuing to teach and prepare them. And having now been exalted to the right hand of God, having ascended into the heavens, which they also witnessed, the Father promised the Holy Spirit. He has given it to the Son, to Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. Just like Jesus said he would do, that he would send the Spirit. We see this repeated then in the book of Acts as the gospel continues to spread and as it continues to break through barriers to non-Jewish people groups. We see this in Acts chapter 8, and I'm not going to read it all, I'll just summarize it. Philip goes from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria. And the Samaritans, of course, were half-Jews, and uh, they were a mixed race, and they were excluded from the Jews, they were seen as unclean, but Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches the gospel. And the Samaritans receive the gospel. They believe. And in fact, Acts chapter 8 tells us that Philip baptizes them in water. 
word reaches the apostles in Jerusalem, who then sent Peter and John to Samaria. And Peter and John go to Samaria to witness this, and they affirm the gospel work of Philip, and they lay their hands on the people. And the reason they've come is because the people have not received the Holy Spirit. They lay their hands on the people, the Samaritan believers. They receive the Holy Spirit. We then see this happen again in Acts chapter 10, even in a more dramatic way. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is a God-fearer. And he receives a vision from an angel in which the angel instructs him, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Send some men to the city of Joppa, where a man named Simon Peter is. Have them tell, get Simon and bring him back to your house. Now, in the meantime, Acts chapter 10 tells us that Peter falls asleep and in his sleep, he has a vision, a dream in which the Lord lowers down a net full of unclean animals and says, arise, kill and eat. And Peter goes, what? No way. This vision repeats until the Lord explains to Peter that I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. I want you to go to this house. Men are coming to, uh, to retrieve you and take you to a house, the home of Cornelius. And so Peter wakes up, and at that moment, there's a knock on his door, and there are men there from Cornelius. And Peter says, yep, I was expecting you. And he goes with them to Cornelius' home. And there he finds a group of people, a large group of people gathered, because Cornelius apparently has been telling everyone, we're going to hear something from God. I received this vision, and I sent guys to go get this this man named Simon, and now he's coming. And so Simon Peter comes, and he sees them all, and he's in the home of a Gentile. And he says, I know, I know for a fact that God is impartial. And so Simon Peter preaches the gospel, and you know what? They receive the gospel. And it tells us in Acts chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And it tells us in chapter 10, verse 45, that there are others who have accompanied Peter, other Jews, other believers, and that they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, I'm just reading this for you, okay? No slides. The Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You notice that phrase, poured out? Sound familiar? The same thing is happening in Cornelius' home that happened in the city of Jerusalem during Pentecost. And then it says, that as, as the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy, this group of Jewish believers say, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So we see this repeated. Why? Because this is the gospel is breaking through a new cultural barrier. It broke through it when it, the gospel and salvation came to the Samaritan people. And now we see it again when the salvation through the gospel comes to the Gentiles. It's the point of the whole story. And we know this because Peter affirms it in the next chapter. 
in Acts chapter 11, we're told that word spreads. That word spreads about what has happened in Cornelius' home and that Peter has gone into a Gentile's home and that he's preached the gospel and they have received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter comes back to Jerusalem and he is confronted by some Jews who say, we hear that you've gone into a Gentile's home. They don't yet understand what's going on and why Peter would do this thing. And so Peter explains to them, and he starts with the story about Cornelius receiving a vision. Then he explains his vision and the unclean animals and that the Lord is the one doing this thing. This isn't Peter's show. This isn't Peter's agenda. This is the Lord's show. This is his work. And, and it was proven. How was it proven? Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. Read this with me here. As I began to speak, now this is Peter's account. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, even these critics. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what are we to make of this? Do you notice the connections that Peter makes between the experience in Cornelius' home in Acts chapter 10 and the experience of himself and the apostles and all of the believers in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2? Peter equates baptized with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit's falling on them at Pentecost. He equates baptized with the Holy Spirit with the same gift received at Pentecost with this gift that has taken place in Cornelius' home. And that just as the Lord prophesied and explained that John had said, you would be baptized with water, but that the Lord would baptize with the Spirit, that is what Peter says was also taking place in Cornelius' home. The gift then that is received when? When we believed. Not afterward. Not after some, in some subsequent follow-up experience. When they believed. Peter says, we received the Spirit Back in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, the Spirit came to us when we believed. It was their faith in Christ. And Peter is saying it happened in the exact same way when they believed in Acts chapter 10. So, contrary then to the Pentecostal teaching, listen, every Christian experiences the baptism of the Spirit at the point that he or she is saved. 
at the point that he or she places their faith in Jesus Christ and becomes his disciple. Every believer has experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a couple of different ideas regarding how this happens in our lives. How we are baptized with the Spirit when we become a Christian. One idea is that when you place your faith in Christ to save you, you are baptized with the Spirit at that point. So then, each of us experiences the Holy Spirit's baptism individually as each of us comes to Christ in faith. You believe in Christ, and you will receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I believe in Christ. I receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then does this work in every instance that someone becomes a believer, the moment that they exercise faith and trust in Christ. Essentially, this equates baptism with the Spirit with receiving the Spirit, which is what Peter commands the audience, the listeners, to do in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, isn't it? Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit that you see being poured out. But I think it's better to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the one-time event at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The pouring out of the Spirit. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words... We each experience the Spirit's baptism when we believe in Christ and receive the Spirit because we are participating in that pouring out of the Spirit that happened at Pentecost. We can repent of sin and believe in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit all because the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Or as John predicted... He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. A mighty river cascades its way down a mountain, having begun from a spring. Pentecost was the spring, and the Spirit's presence and work remain flowing from that point in history down through the centuries until the end when Jesus Christ returns. But it is one baptism that carries down through the centuries, however many there are going to be. The spring is the baptism of the Spirit. And we are baptized with the Spirit when we are swept up in the river, if you will. We experience this individually as we come to faith, but it is not an individualized work. We are joining into the Spirit who has already been sent, already poured out, and we are then baptized with the Spirit as we believe in Christ. So the gift of the Spirit the pouring out of the Spirit, and the baptism with the Spirit all refer to the same event. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that there is one Spirit and one baptism. 
He's not talking about water baptism in that case. He is talking about the one baptism in the Spirit. We all share in the same baptism because it was one event that now carries down through history. And as that river flows through history, we jump into it and we are baptized with the Spirit. Let's come back to the New Covenant then, because it is the New Covenant arrival of the Holy Spirit that initiates His New Covenant ministry in our lives as Christians. And it is these new works that we want to understand and apply in the weeks to come. So let me then just kind of lay out a bird's eye view of the Holy Spirit's new covenant work, his new covenant ministry to us as Christians. And there are a lot of ways to categorize the the Spirit's work, but I'm going to categorize them this way. The Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry includes a restoring work a restoring work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit restores us to a right relationship to God. That's the new covenant that has been established or initiated by Jesus' sacrifice of his life and his resurrection and then his ascension. The Holy Spirit restores us to a right relationship with God. He also incorporates us. Now, I... This word incorporates is kind of this cold clinical word. We think of incorporated. We think of corporations. uh, We think of the names of companies, this and this incorporated, okay? But really it is the best work to describe these new covenant works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit incorporates us, meaning that the Holy Spirit makes us the people of God. He makes us the people of God. The Holy Spirit also transforms us. He does a transforming work. And he does this when we walk in the Spirit, okay, and these kinds of things. So now let's take each of these. Let's take each of these. The Holy Spirit restores us to God by convicting, first of all, by convicting us, doing a work of conviction. The Holy Spirit has to reveal the gospel and convict us that the gospel is true. In our state of spiritual death, we can never do that on our own. The Holy Spirit must reveal and illuminate our minds. He must remove the veil. He must penetrate our spiritual blindness because we are spiritually dead and alienated from God. He must do that work through the proclamation of the word, the gospel. The Holy Spirit restores us then by regenerating us. That is by giving us new life, bringing us to life. The Holy Spirit restores us to God then by indwelling us, coming to take up residence within us, to abide in us to live among us, to be present in our lives, both as individual believers and as a church. But he comes to indwell us. He also then restores us to God by sealing us, that is, preserving us. Because he indwells us, his presence in our lives is a guarantee that we will be saved, that God will finish his work, that The Holy Spirit keeps us until that day of judgment, keeps us for God. 
he preserves us. So this is how the Holy Spirit restores us. And all of these things that the Holy Spirit does, I believe he does them all at one time. They all happen at the moment in which we believe. Well, we'll, we'll work through that, all right? Secondly, the whole, I said the Holy Spirit incorporates us, meaning that the Holy Spirit makes us the people of God. And he does this, first of all, by sanctifying us, setting us apart to God. He does this by adopting us, the spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans chapter 8. He makes us part of God's family by adopting us. He also baptizes us into, now this is not the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but this is an immersion work that the Holy Spirit does by baptizing us into the body of Christ, by placing us into Christ's body. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 12 to see how the Holy Spirit does that. And fourthly, he incorporates us by unifying us, by making us one in himself joining us to Christ. Again, we'll get into the scriptures about how the Holy Spirit unifies us. Then the Holy Spirit transforms us, and he transforms us when we walk in the Spirit, when we fight against the flesh, when we are filled with the Spirit. And when we get to this transforming work of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about all this imagery and what it means to walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Okay, what does it mean to, to resist the flesh, have the spirit who indwells us, aid us in putting, putting sin to death? That is what the Christian life is all about. That is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So listen, as you think about all of this, as we prepare to continue to open the scriptures to understand this new covenant ministry, this new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, know that it is all possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, the baptism with the Spirit, and the new covenant that is established in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts to bring us to God and make us God's own. Have a great week, Crossway. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for these deep and rich truths that we've only begun to scratch the surface of. You are so good to us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to do your mighty work in our hearts and through our lives that we might become like Christ Lord, that we would be your people according to this new covenant, this new relationship we have because of your death and resurrection and Holy Spirit, because of your continued ministry in our lives. We ask all of these things in your great name and for your blessings this week as we seek to be your faithful people in the world. Amen.